Can you turn in your Bibles to uh, Romans chapter 14? We've got a long reading this morning. We're going to read all the way through to chapter 15, verse 7, included. And uh, I'm going to give you a very difficult task. As I read it to you, I want to tackle this this morning from two perspectives. First of all, Paul is speaking into a situation within the church and obviously our attention will be drawn to that. While our minds are naturally drawn to that, I want you to uh, try and keep in mind because about halfway through we're going to change tack and focus on what Paul is actually teaching us about God. So as we read through it, try not just to keep completely caught up in the situation we're reading, but also just keep in mind what Paul is teaching us about God. Chapter 14. Receive the one who is weak in the faith, but not to dispute over doubtful things. For one believes he may eat all things, but he who is weak eats only vegetables. Let him let not him who eats despise him who does not eat. And let not him who does not eat judge him who eats. For God has received him. Who are you to judge another servant? To his own master he stands or falls. Indeed, he will be made to stand For God is able to make him stand. One person esteems one day above another. Another esteems every day alike. Let each be fully convinced in his own mind. He who observes the day observes it to the Lord. And he who does not observe the day to the Lord, he does not observe it. He who eats, eats to the Lord. For he gives God thanks, and he who does not eat to the Lord, he does not eat and gives God thanks. For none of us lives to himself, and no one dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. For to this end Christ died and rose and lived again, that he might be Lord of both the living, of both the dead and the living. But why do you judge your brother? Or why do you show contempt for your brother? For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. For it is written, As I live, says the Lord. Every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God. So then, each of us shall give account of himself to God. Therefore, let us not judge one another any more, but rather resolve this, not to put a stumbling block or a cause to fall in our brother's way. I know, and am convinced by the Lord Jesus, that there is nothing unclean of itself. But to him who considers anything to be unclean, to him it is unclean. Yet if your brother is grieved because of your food, you are no longer walking in love. Do not destroy with your food the one for whom Christ died. Therefore do not let your good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness 
and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. For he who serves Christ in these things is acceptable to God and approved by men. Therefore, let us pursue the things which make for peace and the things by which one may, one may edify another. Do not destroy the work of God for the sake of food. All things indeed are pure, but it is evil for the man who eats with offence. It is good neither to eat meat, nor drink wine, nor do anything by which your brother stumbles, or is offended, or is made weak. Do you have faith? Have it to yourself before God. Happy is he who does not condemn himself in what he approves. But he who doubts is condemned if he eats, because he does not eat from faith. For whatever is not from faith is sin. We then, who are strong, ought to bear with the scruples of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbour for his good, leading to edification. For even Christ did not please himself, but as, as it is written, the, pro, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever things were written before were written for our learning, that we, through patience and comfort of the scriptures, might have hope. Now may the God of patience and comfort grant you to be like-minded toward one another, according to Christ Jesus that you may with one mind and one mouth glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, receive one another, just as Christ also received us, to the glory of God. Now, as I've made clear on previous occasions, Paul wrote his letter to the Romans in order to preserve unity in a church that was in danger of splitting into separate factions made up of believers from Jewish and Gentile backgrounds. And the particular issue which appears to have been the cause was the question as to whether the Gentile church had replaced Israel as the people of God. Now Paul dealt with this issue in chapters 9 to 11 in great detail from a theological and spiritual perspective. Chapters 12 through 16 are a discussion of the practical outworking of all that he's written before. In chapter 12, Paul discussed how each believer should view other believers as mutually dependent members of the same body, instructing them that each has a role to play and a gift to exercise for the benefit of all. In chapter 13, Paul considered how the practical outworking of their faith should extend to the wider community beyond the body, with particular reference to how they should regard governing authorities. However, in chapter 14, the perspective is once more inside the church. It's concerned with internal matters within the body. And since there was an ongoing dispute, Paul now focuses his attention on dealing with those issues likely to be a source of tension between those in disagreement, instructing them on the attitudes they should adopt in practical ways concerning matters of cultural sensitivity. Now in our reading today, one could not have failed to notice that Paul addressed two groups whom he identified as the weak and the strong. So the first question we need to ask is exactly 
Who are the weak? And who are the strong? Now, in chapter 15, verse 1, Paul identifies the weak as those who have scruples. That is, an oversensitive conscience over certain issues. And in particular, Paul specifically identifies in chapter, two, uh, chapter 14, verse 2, that the weak are those who eat only vegetables. However, when taken as a whole, the clear implication of the passage is that the weak are those who have an oversensitive conscience about clean and unclean foods and about the observation of special days also. Now, it would be natural, therefore, to assume that Paul is identifying the weak as believers from a Jewish background, since Jews do observe special days and regard some foods as clean and others unclean. However, Paul does not directly say this. And we need to ask why, particularly since Paul addresses the Jews directly. If you read on into chapter 15, verse 8, he has no problem identifying Jews directly. And in 15, verse 9, he identifies Gentiles directly. So why doesn't Paul identify the weak as believers of Jewish origin and the strong as those of Gentile? Well, I believe to do so would be an oversimplification. First, it assumes there would not have been any Gentiles among the weak. And given the probable history of the church at Rome, this is unlikely to have been the case. We know that the first Christians were in fact Jews. And from Acts chapter 2, that there were Jews from Rome present when the Holy Spirit was first given at Pentecost. It's therefore highly probable that these were the first to preach the gospel in Rome. Consequently, it's highly likely then that the first Gentile converts may well have thought that adopting certain Jewish cultural practices, such as the observance of days and diets, would have been a rightful expression of the Christian faith. And we know from Acts chapter 15 that the extent to which Gentiles adopted Jewish customs and culture was a matter of debate within the church during that period of history. So in first century Rome, there may well have been a significant number of believers of Gentile origin who had adopted some of those aspects of Jewish culture and would therefore have been among those Paul identified as the weak. Also, we know that the tendency to regard certain days as having special significance is not limited to Jews only. In fact, this too has been a feature of the history of an essentially Gentile church too. By way of example, while I was preparing this talk, I was reminded in an article that I read about the Chinese missionary Eric Liddell. Most people today, me included, know about or first heard about Eric Liddell as a consequence of the film Chariots of Fire. And before taking up his calling, To be a full-time missionary in China, Eric Liddell was selected to compete for Britain in the 100 metres at the 1924 Olympics. However, whilst travelling to the Games, he was made aware that the heats of that event were to be held on a Sunday. Realising this, and viewing this as a compromise to his faith, Eric Liddell famously made a stand and refused to compete. You see, he regarded Sunday as a Sabbath day. He believed that work and recreational activity, such as running, was forbidden. Now, such a view among Christians in Western nation appears to be less common today. 
However, there are still many who would believe it to be wrong to work on Sundays or even to buy goods from the local shop. So it's not just Jews who have a tradition of regarding certain days as special. It's been a feature of Christians from a Gentile background too. Now, there is a second reason for believing that it's an oversimplification to identify the weak as Jews and the strong as Gentiles. And that's because it assumes that there are only Gentiles among the strong. Now, Paul himself was a strict Pharisee and once described himself as a Hebrew of Hebrews. Yet he was convinced that no food was unclean and that to regard certain days as special was therefore a matter of personal conviction. And this, we read in uh, chapter 14, verse 14, had been revealed to him directly by the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, he does not give us any details of that revelation. However, we do know that Paul was not the only apostle to have received such a revelation. In Acts chapter 10, we have full details of the revelation given to Peter concerning this very issue. We also know that among believers of Jewish origin in Rome at that time were a couple called Priscilla and Aquila. And they had previously worked very closely with Paul in ministry for a period of at least two years. Consequently, it would be reasonable to assume that they would have exerted considerable influence in the church at Rome at that very time. It is therefore highly likely that they and other believers of Jewish origin would have no such scruples over days and diets and therefore would be included among those Paul who has identified as being the strong. So to identify the weak as Jews and the strong as Gentiles, I believe is too simplistic. I believe that it may well have been true that those among the weak would have been more likely to have been made up of Christians of Jewish background, but not exclusively so. Now, hopefully, that's given some clarification as to the identity of the weak and the strong. But we now need to turn our attention to the instructions that Paul gave to each of those groups. The impression one gets reading through this section, it appears that the majority of his comments are directed towards those he has identified as the strong and are particularly concerned with their attitude towards the weak. In general, the instruction appears to be that the strong should understand that the scruples of the weak with respect to days and diets are a matter of personal conviction. Their observation of these should therefore be understood as a natural outworking of genuine faith and as such, the strong should not try to change them by persuasion and certainly not by exerting undue pressure or coercion. Their observance in these matters is to be understood as being between them and God. However, before looking in detail at Paul's instructions, I feel that it is appropriate at this point to clarify who the weak are not. You see, in various places in the letter, Paul has drawn attention to backsliders, those who were showing outward evidence of walking after the flesh, And as a consequence, their behaviour was becoming characterised by revelry and drunkenness, lewdness and lust, and strife and envy. Note carefully that Paul does not include such as these in in his definition of being weak in faith. As far as Paul is concerned, the weak in faith are those with an oversensitive conscience with respect to days and diets, and that this is a condition that no one should seek to change. 
However, the same cannot be said of those who are succumbing to the temptation to walk according to the flesh. Paul regards this situation as being very serious and one that most definitely needs to be addressed. Now, please do not misunderstand. I'm not for one second saying that Paul, or indeed any other New Testament writer, is unsympathetic to those who find themselves in this situation. As the scriptures clearly testify, quite the reverse is true. We read in the letter to the Hebrews, For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathise with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. In fact, the Apostle John went so far as to say that if we know nothing of this temptation to give in to our weakness and fall into sin, then such a person is not only deluding themselves, but they're also they're not a Christian. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. However, although sympathetic, the scriptures do not give us license to simply accept and give in to the situation. There is an action to be taken, a remedy to be applied that God has made full provision for. And and as the scriptures make abundantly clear, there is a responsibility for both the person concerned and also for his brothers and sisters in the Lord. In verse 9, John goes on to add, If we confess our sins, he is faithful to forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Notice that we have a responsibility to confess, and before we can confess, we need to recognise. But it's he, and he alone, who can forgive and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We cannot form his righteous character in ourselves by our own efforts. Only he can do that work in us as we walk according to the Spirit. Now there is also a responsibility for the fellow believers who personally know the one who has fallen into sin. In James we read, Brethren, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save a soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. So returning to Romans 14, we need to ask the question, what exactly was going on in the church at Rome? How was this dispute that threatened to divide the fellowship being manifested? Now this requires us to do some detective work. We need to discern from what Paul has written in this passage what may have been happening. The tensions that existed between the weak and the strong, it seems, was most apparent during social functions which involved people sharing meals together. In his instructions to the strong, Paul states that they should receive, accept and bear with those whose faith is weak. He tells them not to despise them and asks them why they show contempt. Now, I do not believe that Paul would write such things unless they were actually occurring. He later instructs the strong that it's good neither to eat meat nor to drink wine or to do anything by which their brother stumbles, is offended or made weak. And by good, Paul means as God would want it. One can therefore deduce from this statement that the contemptuous attitude of the strong towards the weak was most evident on those occasions when the church met together for fellowship that involved them eating and drinking together. Paul was instructing those he had identified as strong 
that although they may well be correct in their thinking that no food should be regarded as unclean and that they were therefore not breaking any food laws, however, in not choosing to restrict their freedom in these matters, they were in fact breaking a greater commandment, the commandment to love their neighbour as themselves. Now one might argue that perhaps they did not realise what they were doing or even the effect they were having. However, from what Paul has written, I do not believe that this would constitute a credible defence. Paul used several different terms to describe the effect on the weak. He stated that they have been offended and, and grieved. On two occasions, he states that they have been made to stumble and adds that they've been made weak. However, the most disturbing comment that Paul writes is that the faith of some was in danger of being destroyed on account of their unwillingness to voluntarily restrict their freedom over food. And he did so twice. This suggests that some had become so discouraged that they'd either left or were about to leave the church. Therefore, Paul's use of language makes it clear that those present in the body at that time could hardly have failed to notice the effect that the contemptuous attitude of the strong was having on the weak. Now, there are two sides to every argument. And as well as issuing instructions to those identified as strong, Paul also has a few things to say to the weak. You see, however justified they may have been of feeling offended and aggrieved, this didn't absolve them from their responsibility to respond appropriately as God's children. Some, it appears, from among the weak, were responding with a judgmental attitude. It appears some were thinking, if these people were really Christians, then they would respect the days and observe the laws. Surely their attitude confirms that they cannot be truly God's people. So Paul wrote this to counter such an attitude. Let him who does not eat not judge him who eats, for God has received him. Paul then goes on to question them too. Who are you to judge God's servant, he asks. Now, having spoken specifically to those on each side of the dispute, Paul is equally keen to say things that they both need to consider. His intention is to bring about his sorry his intention to bring about resolution is clear. In 15 verse 7 he states that they are to receive each other just as Christ has received them. And this intention is apparent right the way through his argument. As we've just noted his instruction to the weak is not to judge the one who eats because God has received him. And his instruction to the strong is to recognise the weak as being a brother and to love him accordingly. Yet if your brother is grieved because of your food, you are no longer walking in love. Now if they are, now they are brothers by virtue of the fact that they are God's children. They are all children of the same heavenly father. And having established the fact of their unity... Paul is keen to impress upon them that whether or not they observe days and or diets is a matter of personal conviction. Let each be convinced in his own mind. And therefore, their consequent actions are a natural outworking of their faith because they are done unto the Lord. And whatever is not from faith is sin. 
They are therefore not to regard those who hold the opposite view as being selfish, for none lives to himself. Now, did you notice as we read through the passage how Paul repeated himself when making his argument? However, instructions initially directed to one side, do not show contempt, was his instruction to the strong, and do not judge, was his instruction to the weak, Did you notice how they were later restated generally without direction? In verse 10 we read, But why do you judge your brother? Or why do you show contempt? And then later in verse 13 he concludes, Therefore let us not judge one another anymore. You see, Paul makes his argument in such a way that each side needs to consider the other's perspective. He gives each the opportunity to put themselves in the other's shoes, to use a modern expression. And this is a highly effective and powerful method in conflict resolution. The ability to see things from the other's point of view. He then goes on to remind them of their primary purpose as God's people. And as we discussed more fully last time, the primary function of God's people is to glorify God. And we do so individually and collectively as the Holy Spirit works in us and through us to form God's righteous character in us. Therefore, they are not to allow matters of personal conviction to lead to disputes over doubtful things. For the kingdom of God is not eating or drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. And since their primary purpose is to glorify God by having his righteous character formed in them, it follows that their attitude towards each other will be to seek to build up and edify rather than to win an argument and destroy each other in the process. God is love, wrote the Apostle John. And this love is expressed as a consistent act of the will towards another's lasting good. Therefore, if God's character is being formed within them, Their concern will not be to please themselves, but rather each will seek to please his neighbour for his good. Now for the strong, that will be evidenced by a willingness to restrict their freedom with respect to food so as not to offend, and for the weak in not judging those who eat. Now at this point I want to change tack and turn our attention away from this dispute over food. Some may be thinking that I've not said all that could and should be said on this subject and may even be wondering why I've made no mention of 1 Corinthians 8 which also deals with food issues. The reason I've not done so is very simple. In each case Paul was addressing two very different situations. The issue at Corinth was a question concerning food offered to idols. Idolatry was therefore the main concern. Now in Romans 14, there is not a single specific mention of idolatry. Therefore, I feel fully justified in not mentioning it either. Paul was speaking into a specific situation occurring at the time in Rome. And in doing so, he was actually doing more than perhaps he realised. For in addressing this situation, he was actually teaching them about God. And this is so important for us to understand. God was being made known to them in and through their daily experience of living as his people. As a consequence of their particular circumstances, and even in spite of the difficulties they faced and the poor attitudes they had towards one another, 
They were learning about God. Now, please don't think I'm suggesting that their bad behaviour was being rewarded in any way, but rather they were acquiring a knowledge of God by experiencing the bold discipline of a loving Heavenly Father. And the lesson that they needed to learn was a very different one from the one that was needed by the people in Corinth. So I want to spend the rest of this talk considering what the passage teaches us about God. And I want to begin by making a general point about the passage as a whole before looking directly at some of the things Paul specifically stated. Now, ideally at this point, we would reread the passage, but given its length, this would be impractical now. So I suggest when reviewing either the notes or the recording that you reread the passage. And as you do so, ask yourself these questions. What does God require of them? What outcome is he desiring? Do you get the sense he wants them to succeed, learn from their mistakes and mature in their faith? You see, if our attention is on the people when we read the passage, we are made aware of their failings, that their attitude and behaviour was rather less than it should have been. When we read how they were judging each other and being insensitive to the other's need, we come to the conclusion that those involved in the dispute were not walking in love, but behaving in an immature, uncaring and selfish manner. But what was God's attitude towards them? Does he write them off as failures with no hope of learning and growing? Or do you get the sense that he expects to see them to see the error of their ways and realise their need to change? Do you get a sense that God expects them to respond in such a way that they will more truly reflect his character in the outworking of their daily lives? From what the Holy Spirit inspired Paul to write, it is evident that God is not happy for the situation to continue. It needs to be dealt with, and those involved do require discipline. But it's a discipline given with the hope and expectation of success that they will indeed realise their attitude and behaviour has been wrong and that they will learn from it and respond accordingly. And this, Paul makes clear a little bit later on in chapter 15, verse 14, when he says, Now I myself am confident concerning you, my brethren, that you are full of goodness. So the first thing I believe we can conclude, taking the passage as a whole, is that God is for us. His discipline is restorative and edifying, given for the purpose of producing correction, growth and maturity. It is given to build us up and to put strength into us. As the psalmist wrote, thy rod and staff, which were symbols of the shepherd's discipline, thy rod and thy staff, they comfort, that is, they put strength into, they comfort me. God wants to form his righteous character in us in order to bless us. It is for our own good, that it might go well with us, as Moses wrote. And this is what Paul makes clear in verse 18. For he who serves Christ in these things is acceptable to God and approved by men. Now, turning our attention to those things more specifically stated, it is evident throughout that Paul wants to emphasise God's rightful authority over them and their consequent accountability to him. 
it gives reference to this authority in three contexts. We noted earlier that Paul was keen that they each recognise each other as brothers. Therefore, the context for God's authority is family. It's as a loving Heavenly Father who disciplines those he has adopted into his family. In verse 17, Paul speaks about the kingdom of God, reminding his readers that God is their king. And as such, his authority is absolute. However, as Jesus made clear, this is not a kingdom that, at least at this present time, has a geographical location, nor is it physically evident. My kingdom is not of this world, Jesus said. The kingdom of God is present in this world, though as a spiritual reality in the hearts and minds of his people, in the lives of individuals, and as they gather together as a body, as their hearts are loyal and fully surrendered to him. Now, although not outwardly evident at present, as Christians we do look forward to a time when his kingdom will be fully established as a physical reality at the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the third context of his authority is stated in terms of a slave to his master. Who are you to judge another servant? To whom, to his own master, he stands or falls. Now, I need to remind you, and we were reminded earlier on today, that the the slave-master relationship needs to be understood in its biblical context. Paul like other New Testament writers, was pleased to introduce himself as a bondservant of the Lord Jesus Christ. As I have previously discussed at length, a bondservant is a completely willing participant in the arrangement. And when a bondservant willingly commits himself into his master's service, completely surrendering himself to prefer his master's concerns above his own, he does so in the full knowledge that his master is more willing and more able to care for that servant than the servant is able to care for himself. So having identified the three contexts in which Paul speaks of God's authority, it is clear why it is right for them to call him Lord. And Paul reminds them in verse 9 that they have only been brought into this relationship as a direct consequence of Jesus' death and resurrection. Christ died and rose and lived again that he might be Lord of both the living and the dead. Therefore, he has rightful judgment over them and over us too. And it's to him that we must give account. Now, when Paul stated, for we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ in verse 10, the all may well be referring to the whole of humanity, as Acts 17 verse 31 confirms. However, in this passage, Paul very much has Christians in mind. Remember, he's writing to believers, and that all believers will one day stand before Christ to give account of their lives to God. Now, Paul did not go into dates and details of when the judgment of Christians and the judgment of the world will take place. He simply stated as fact that there is a day when believers will give account. What he did stress, however, is that believers will appear before the judgment seat of Christ and that they will worship, that is, bow the knee and confess to God. 
And to support his argument, Paul quotes from the prophet Isaiah. He actually quotes Isaiah 45, verse 23. But let's just turn to Isaiah for the moment and just read the fuller version of what Paul was actually quoting from. We'll just read Isaiah 45. We'll just read the whole of that little section, 22 through to 25. Look to me and be saved, all you ends of the earth. For I am God and there is no other. I have sworn by myself, the word has gone out of my mouth in righteousness and shall not return. That to me, every knee shall bow, every tongue shall take an oath. He shall surely say, surely in the Lord I have righteousness and strength. To him, men shall come and all shall be ashamed who are incensed against him. In the Lord, all the descendants of Israel shall be justified and shall glory. Now, the passage clearly states that everyone will worship God and clearly the Lord is the subject of these verses. And a little earlier in Isaiah, in Isaiah 42, verse 8, we read, I am the Lord, that is my name and my glory I will not give to another. Yet in his letter to the Philippians, in Philippians chapter 2, verses 9 to 11, Paul wrote this, just listen. Therefore God has exalted him and given him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee shall bow, of those in heaven and of those of the earth and those under the earth, And that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now logically this can lead to only one of two conclusions. Either the scriptures are contradicting themselves or they are affirming the divinity of Jesus Christ. There is no other option. And since we believe that all scripture is God breathed, meaning God is given by the inspiration of God himself... There can be no such contradiction. Therefore, the scripture clearly teaches that Jesus Christ is indeed God. Now, did you see the justice of God in all of this? For we will give account to Jesus Christ, who knows by experience what it is to live as a human being in this fallen world. For Jesus is both fully human and fully God. Not only is Jesus our authority, he is also our example. Remember how Paul rebuked the strong as not walking in love when they exercised their freedom with respect to food, without regard for the sensitivities of their brothers on this issue. Paul instructed that none should act merely to please themselves, for none of us lives to himself, he wrote in verse 7. And he later gave the reason in chapter 15, verse 3, Because Christ did not please himself. For even Christ did not please himself. But as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproach you fell on me. Now the full nature of those reproaches are made clear by the prophet Isaiah, who was writing about Jesus when he said that he was despised and rejected by men. He was oppressed and afflicted. His face disfigured beyond recognition. He was wounded for our transgressions and bruised for our iniquities. 
And I recommend that you read the whole of the section, Isaiah 52, 13 through to 53, verse 12, to get a greater sense and understanding of those reproaches. As well as being our example, God is also our teacher. Note in chapter 15, verse 4, that the scriptures were written for our learning. And it is through diligent study of the scriptures, combined with the influence of the Holy Spirit working in our hearts, that we will be transformed by the renewing of our minds. It is through the scriptures that we will attain the promised patience and comfort that leads to hope. And the reason it is the scriptures that give us patience and comfort is because God is the source of that patience and comfort, as Paul made clear in chapter 15, verse 5. And the logical consequence of God teaching them through the scriptures is the healing of relationships between those in dispute. The consequence of their minds being renewed is the expectation that they will see each other differently. No longer as people to be judged or shown contempt, but of being of one mind towards one another according to Christ Jesus. It's only when the healing of this rift that has divided them that they will fulfil the purpose for which they were called out of this world to be God's people, his church. Only then will they with one mind and one mouth glorify God, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, the last thing for us to consider today is that God is also a healer. A healer not just of illnesses and broken bodies, but through the precious gift of his word, he is a healer of broken relationships too. They are therefore to receive one another as Christ also received us to the glory of God. So what have we learned today? Firstly, although the church is made up of people who have been called out of this world to glorify God as his righteous character is formed in them, nonetheless, we should not expect any particular church to be perfect. The letter of Romans, like the other epistles, tells us that even in the first century, the church was not without its problems. In fact, there's never been a time when the church has not experienced difficulties that require resolution. So we too should not be surprised that this will be true in churches today. We've also learned that as well as there being issues that require our attention, there are others that are and should remain matters of personal conviction. Matters such as these should be respected as valid expressions of true faith that we should not seek to change. We need to accept that in a body made up of people from different backgrounds, there will be differences of opinion over some issues of cultural sensitivity. However, the most important lesson that we need to understand is that God is for us. He wants us to succeed. He wants us to learn, grow and mature as his people. Knowledge of God is given through his word, but not merely by academic study. Rather, it is a knowledge given to us as we participate in the life that he has called us to. A life of active involvement of part, as part of his adopted family, the church. 
It's a knowledge given as his word is applied to every aspect of our lives. As we surrender our whole lives into his loving care, we come to know and experience God's love as our father, our master and our king. We will experience his loving discipline that puts strength into us as we do indeed learn, grow and mature. We will come to know him as the one who encourages and who enables us to succeed and also as the one who brings healing and restoration to broken lives and broken relationships. Let us pray that this will indeed be our experience of him. God bless you all. Amen.